Hi friends and welcome back to another episode of Open House, a fresh, fun and real podcast where I, Louise Rumble, invite you inside the therapy room with me to learn from some of the very best psychologists, therapists and sex and intimacy coaches that I have found. No topic is off the table, no question too juicy and no experience too shameful. At Open House, everyone is welcome. And we're on a mission to develop a new mental health experience for all because we believe that true happiness is coming home to yourself under the layers and layers of you that society has told you to be. As ever, please remember that this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and you should always seek professional medical help when necessary. Now, let's get into it and I'll see you on the other side. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Open House podcast with me, your host, Louise Rumble. I'm here every week. I don't know why I always introduce myself. Today, I have a very special guest. She's never joined us on the podcast before. Her name is Dr. Jenna Vias Lee, and she's a clinical psychologist and the founder of Cove, a London-based therapy practice that offers everything from therapy to assessments and more. We're going to go into that and so much more today, but she founded Cove with her brother and her husband. So it's a healthy family affair, which we love. I think we, we, we need more more families all in the therapy space together at this point. So I'm so excited to have Dr. Jenna here with us today. What I am also excited about is what we are talking about. ADHD, ADHD, ADHD. This is a topic that is everywhere. And all you have to do is open your TikTok and 30 seconds later, you will probably close the app having self-diagnosed yourself with ADHD. And I know that that is a journey that I went through personally, and I guess it's a journey that I'm still on. And I'm sure that's something that we're going to talk about today. I think this fine line between self-diagnosis, how valuable it can be, how sometimes dangerous it can be, and the importance of assessments. And we're going to get into all of that and more. I think it's so beautiful that we are seeing more and more people starting to be more open about these things and what it's like to live with these things and what it's like to be in relationships with things and family units with neurodivergency. As someone who has a father on the spectrum, this is something also very, very close to my heart. So I'm just so excited to get into this discussion today. I have lots of questions for Dr. Jenna, and I've also had some submitted by listeners in advance. And I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Dr. Jenna also might have gone on this journey personally. I got a diagnosis of dyslexia when I was 30, and I was doing my doctorate, and I was failing my essays, and my personal tutor said, write something and I'll, I'll read it for you. And she read it and she said, well, obviously it's your dyslexia that's the problem. Like no one's ever said that to me before. So I went off to get my dyslexia diagnosis. And since then, I have been on a very interesting self-reflective journey, I guess, in understanding the huge crossover between all the different diagnoses. And, and I know we're going to talk a, a bit about that um, later on, but I am definitely somebody that has gone, hmm, I'm pretty sure I fulfill all those criteria. Um around their ADD, especially, if not the full ADHD diagnosis. What is the difference between ADD and ADHD? I don't even know, which is showing my ignorance. So I'd love it if you could just explain that to us quickly. Yeah, I think we use so much terminology at the moment to help us understand ourselves and each other. And it's not just within the neurodivergent 
world. It's within all sorts of identity worlds where we're really into categorizing, labeling, giving what's going on for us some language, which is great. But specifically, ADHD stands for Attention Deficit Hyperactivity Disorder. And that really, that full diagnosis of ADHD is thinking about all the different bits. So it's thinking about having an attention problem, having a hyperactivity problem, and putting those things together and coming up with with a full diagnosis. Actually, what they did was they recognized the people that do the research around this and the hotshot psychiatrists and other people, they get together and they think about the different criteria for the different diagnoses. And what they realized was there was a whole cohort of people, actually, especially women and older men, that don't fit this ADHD profile. So they are not the young boys that are running around, jumping, climbing, doing that really typical hyperactivity stuff that you might see and think about. But actually, they still have a pathological and pervasive issue with attention and concentration. What we did was we thought, right, well, how can we give some language and a diagnosis to those people? And so we dropped the H bit, and it used to be called ADD, but technically now it's ADHD inattentive type. Okay, interesting. So I'd love it if you could just tell me a little bit about how ADHD, ADD might show up differently for perhaps like the later diagnosis, like the adult female. You also said the older man. I think we can incorporate that into this discussion too, but seeing as 95% of the podcast listeners are in that female sort of 20 to 40 category, I'd love it if you could just tell me a little bit more about, yeah, this new wave of awareness and diagnostics that are coming up in that category. Sure. Well, why don't we tackle the 10% of men that are listening um, first? And then, because that's going to be really quick. What usually happens in a really typical male trajectory of ADHD is you get this hyperactivity, you get little boy who's running around, taking lots of risks, and that peaks. And then actually, as men get older, that drops off a little bit. And what they're left with is ADD. And so it's not very often that you see a man jumping up and down in the street or running away, but they may have had that profile when they were younger. Moving on to the women and what that looks like. In the girls, we see huge amounts of inattention, concentration difficulties, daydreaming so much, being quite impulsive in relationships. And then also, as you get older, thinking about emotional regulation, what that looks like in a relationship. And if we're thinking about the the adult woman, and let's say somebody that is in their late 20s, early 30s, really want to think about what's going on for that person at that time in their life. The stereotype, I guess, for women, and, and I'm really behind that we're moving away from this, but I think there's still quite a lot of stereotyping and quite a lot of expectations, are that women are patient that they are organized, they have lots of control over their life. And there's lots of women trying to do it all, right? So you've got people trying to hold down careers, trying to hold down families, being the perfect partner, the perfect mother, the perfect, I don't know, dog owner, whatever you've got going on in your life, you're trying to do it to a really high standard. And if there's a chink in the metal and you put so much pressure on it, that's going to become more and more exposed. And that's when we might see women coming to discuss a diagnosis. And often what they'll say is, there was always something. I always knew that there was something. 
And that might be internal messages that they got from teachers, from parents that said, you're just not working hard enough. This isn't good enough. There's always something going on there with their attention, their concentration, their distractibility, but it was just put down to something else. And so they now get this language. They go on TikTok. They think, actually, yeah, I can see that. I understand that. That's what this is called. And they present to services for a diagnosis. I think what's so interesting that's coming out of TikTok particularly is all of these maybe more late diagnosis traits that, like you said, are outside of the typical diagnosis. So a lot of people who often have said, like, I might walk around the kitchen and I'll be going to take something out the microwave and on the way I pick up my phone and then I realize I haven't taken out the laundry. And so I go to the laundry and then I realize I have no washing powder. So I go over there and 10 minutes later, you know, you've forgotten what you were even doing in the first place. I feel like alongside that more maybe like inattentive piece, there's also the hyper-focused piece. I'm really, really interested in this personally because I tick so many of these boxes that we're going to talk about today, but I was never, ever the inattentive child. I was so attentive. I was so hyper-focused. I was like such a perfectionist. But if you look at all the things on TikTok... 99% of them I'll be like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God, that's me, that's me. So I'd love to just talk about this point around like hyper-focus for some people. Yeah, and and I think it's so interesting that you're talking about the perfectionist personality traits as well, because that really ties into something that I think we're going to talk about later on around masking across kind of neurodevelopmental disorders. When we're thinking about hyper-focus, what we need to remember is ADHD, all neurodevelopmental or neurodivergent conditions, they're heterogeneous. And what we mean about that is you might have two people standing in front of you with the same label or disorder, but they present completely differently. So you might have the ADD or ADHD inattentive type woman standing in front of you that is distracted, scatty, not organized, has a very kind of laissez-faire attitude to life and that suits them fine. And you might have somebody else that also has an ADHD diagnosis who has spent a really long time working out how to be perfect or trying really hard to master this idea of, I need to be able to concentrate. And it's really interesting when you talk to parents and school teachers about these people, because especially if they're in their teens and they're still in school, there's often lots of discussion about what they were like when they were really young. And there might have been worries or fears about doing things wrong. What happened when they did get their spelling test? Not, you know, it wasn't perfect. And so you develop those characteristics throughout your childhood and you become the perfectionist adult and you are hyper-focused on things but that doesn't mean that you don't have ADHD. I think it's so interesting if people are listening to this to go back and ask that question to your parents. Like, how was I as a child? Because I remember that my mum said to me, which was a big red flag. I was like, oh, you know, am I autistic? Am I on the spectrum? Where do I fit in in this neurodivergent space? Is that my mum said like all the other children would like play together and I would just sit there and I would like pick up my toys and I'd like look at them and I'd turn them around and I'd like think about them and I'd settle them all down. And it would never be like obsessive. You know, you see some children that have to put everything in a row. It was never like that, but there was definitely some element of, I guess, just, yeah, presenting differently, like even in that, in that younger space. So I think it's really fascinating to know that it can show up differently for different people. We've spoken about hyperfocus. I'd love it if we could talk about this rejection sensitivity 
disorder. This is one piece that makes me always query, like, are you actually ADHD or are you just a sensitive human? Sometimes I think, can you really diagnose yourself as having ADHD just because you don't like being rejected? Because like, literally who likes being rejected? I think what you're saying is so interesting because depending on the narrative that you bought into, depending on the types of TikTok videos that you're watching or what information you're being exposed to, you're going to have a very different view of what ADHD is. And that's no bad thing. It really plays into the idea that neurodiversity is heterogeneous, like we've just been talking about. When we're thinking about this highly sensitive person, that in itself is not an ADHD diagnosis, right? Because actually there's so many other diagnoses that you could attach to that personality trait or no diagnosis. It could just be that's who you are. That's okay. You're allowed to be slightly more sensitive than the average person. Does it mean that you have ADHD? Well, the answer to that is it's really complicated. And what we want to do is we want to look at the whole range of your life, everything that's going on. We want to see you as an individual that lives in an environment that's impacted by so many different factors. And then we want to put all of that information together, along with some developmental history. What were you like as a child? What were you like growing up? What were you like going through your development? Put all of that together and then come up with a sensible explanation for the symptoms that you're facing. Yeah, I think this is why it's just so important that people, if they do think that this might be something that they are living with or that is part of them, why the diagnostic piece, why the assessment piece is so important. It is so easy just to label ourselves. Like I live in Tulum in Mexico and it's very, very noisy here. And there will be construction work on one side and there will be someone having a techno party on the other side. And I remember that there have been times when like my nervous system just could not handle the noise. It was like two sources, both very aggressive, both on either side of me. I just had like a full-blown breakdown. I literally was like lying in a dark room and I wasn't like rocking, you know, the traditional like autism, like, like response, but I could not function. And I think after that, I just was like, you know, you go on TikTok, it says like, oh, if you're really sensitive to noise, blah, blah, you have ADHD. And again, that for me was like, oh, I have ADHD. Do you think, that's true. Are you seeing more people coming through the doors saying, I think I have ADHD, ADD, autism? Absolutely. And that's for a number of reasons. So there is a huge public health drive at the moment to talk about these symptoms, talk about these diagnoses, make sure that people are getting the help and support they need. When you add into that, the amount of information available over all social media platforms, billboards, advertising TV, absolutely everything, then of course the natural response to that is to go, I think that is me. I want to go and find out more about that. It's really interesting your conversation, your thinking around what happened to you in Mexico and the overload, because I was thinking about this this morning and I was thinking about how the way that we live in the world and the world itself, both of those things have changed dramatically over the last hundred years. So the way that we live in the world has changed because now our brain is a muscle and what we're actually doing now is we're using the bit of the muscle that's shorter and sharper. We're looking at 30 second clips and we're looking at seconds on TikTok and that bit of our brain is getting stronger and stronger and stronger. 
and the bit of our brain that needs the long attention span, that needs to read a whole chapter of a book to really understand a couple of concepts about what's going on, that bit of the brain is being used less and less. And that's just the attention piece. When you think about the sensory overload that everybody's facing, especially if you live in a city or even a busy town, you add all these things up, you stack them all up with, now I'm also trying to have a career, hold down a family, do all these different things. And the question becomes, is this a neurological condition that I'm suffering from? Or is this just life burnout? And am I living in a world that is actually just too much for me? And there's so much comparison that we do as well. So you see the other woman, the other girl doing all of this stuff and you think, well, they're fine and I'm not. So therefore there must be something wrong with me. But are they fine? Do we actually know? Are they also on TikTok going, God, I think I've got ADHD because I can't cope with all of the stuff that I've got going on. And I think the word can't cope is something that I really want to touch on here because like you said, the world we live in today, it's incredibly overwhelming. Okay. I don't have children. I could not imagine running the two businesses that I do, trying to maintain my health, my mental health, my relationship, my friends and family, 12,000 miles away, the two cats I have here, the dog that I have at home. Like for me, it is relentless. If you are a mother on top of that, if you're a father on top of that, I have so much respect for you. If you feel like the world is overwhelming, I am here with you. Like I find the world incredibly overwhelming. Me too. Absolutely. I often feel like there's something wrong with me because I can't do everything that I would like to do or that I'm supposed to do. And is a whole other discussion. I'm sure there's so much in your back catalogue about the inner voice and people should definitely go and listen to that. But where does that come from? It's really interesting. Where does that narrative come from of I'm just not good enough? Is that because actually you've got ADHD and you just can't, you know, you can't do the things that you should be able to do for your developmental level? Or is it world burnout? Yeah, I think that's so interesting. And I also think we did an episode on the mother wound and how like your relationship with your mum can tie into the way you show up in the world and we spoke previously about how I love my mom. I'm, I'm very, very close with her, like very close with her. But she made comments in the past because her trauma response is like cleaning. Don't touch the kitchen. Don't touch the fridge. It's not your space. Like get out of the kitchen. She said to me once before, you know, how will anyone ever love you if you're this messy? And, you know, things like that, they really stay with you. So I think, like you said, that inner voice asking where it's coming from, like, is this a developmental I don't know if condition is the right word, but you know, is it the way that your brain, your nervous system developed or is it actually that that inner voice is your mother? We don't want to put people off thinking that they do have ADHD if they have ADHD, right? Where we've got to is ultimately a great place where there's a cohort of people who have grown up thinking, I know there's something different about me. This doesn't feel quite right. And for that set of people going and getting a diagnosis working through treatment options, even if you don't do that, but you say to yourself, I have ADHD and that's how I'm going to view myself and that's how I'm going to live. That can be so therapeutic. It can open up so much space in your mind, in your relationships. It's so good for your functioning. So we absolutely don't want to say, yes, you don't have ADHD and you know we shouldn't be talking about that diagnosis. I guess what we're talking about here is something called differential diagnosis, where we're thinking through all the different options. Is this set of symptoms best explained by 
personality, by trauma, by a life event in your adulthood, by developmental difficulty like autism or ADHD. And we want to have that conversation collaboratively as professionals and as the public and come up with the best solution for the person that's sitting in front of us. Yeah, you're so right. And you see it, people that get their diagnoses and they say it's the best thing that has ever happened to them because they realize, like you said, all along, they felt a little different. I've always felt a little different. I'm always very, very, very open about that, that I've never quite felt, you know, I've always been, and I think this is where we could probably talk about masking because for me, it's like from the outside until I started this podcast, people would always be like, oh, your life is perfect. Like, tick the box here, tick the box there. And I always had the cool friends and I was in the cool group and life was always good, but something inside of me always felt just a little different from everyone around me. And I guess I covered that up by being like everyone else. So, you know, you go to university, you do all the partying. And for some people who fit into this section, you know, I have a history of substance abuse. Now I look back, it's because I understand, like I was just using anything I could to kind of calm what was going on in my head, in my body. But back to the masking, I would work so hard, but then I would work myself into the ground. I would forget to eat. It would be 5 p.m. Again, it happens all the time. But I would love it if we could just talk about like this masking, particularly masking in women and what masking actually means. Does it mean like suppressing the symptoms? Does it just mean you actively are trying to fit in? What is masking? It's a great question and it covers so much of autism and ADHD. And I think lots of people listening to this will also be able to relate even if they don't have a diagnosis or they don't think they have autism or ADHD because we do a bit of this anyway, all the time. There's a new term actually that's being banded around, I guess, which is called camouflaging. And maybe that's slightly more helpful in terms of working out what that actually means, which is doing whatever you can to fit in, basically. And at the micro level, it might be that a young girl works out in order to get by, you have to use hand gestures in a certain way because that helps with communication. She might not even do that consciously. It might be a subconscious thing that she does. That's at the absolute micro level. And then you start talking about all the things that you're talking about, which are going to university and going to the parties and doing the socializing and going out with the right boy or doing the right sports to fit in. When actually you're using up so much energy and the side effect of that is then coming home and completely collapsing. So in a nutshell, masking is doing whatever it takes to not stick out and to get on and to be that social being that everybody expects you to be. And what's really interesting to me is some of where this comes from because there's a lot of research that says that girls and women mask way more than men and little boys do. And if we think about a really classic example of a really small toddler, two really small toddlers, girl, boy, they might both be playing with a train track. And if we bring this into the modern world, most parents, even with a girl now, will be careful about not just having dolls. Nothing wrong with just having dolls, but lots of parents now say, oh, we've got lots of gender neutral toys, which is amazing. So you get this train track and you think, I'm being really gender neutral and we're going to play with this train track. Both children are playing with the same train track. The boy is not engaging with anybody else. He's playing with the train track over and over again. He's doing his own thing. And the response to that is, isn't he good at getting on with it? 
oh, he's in his own world doing his boy thing. That's really great. The little girl that's playing with the train track, what you will see time and time again is an adult intervene, get a different train and say, can I come with you? Oh, that train wants to play too. Get a character and say, can I come onto your train? I'm at the station. Adults teach girls from a very young age how to do socializing, how to do life, if you like. So girls learn really quickly how to mask. They learn those rules. They just get on with it, which is another reason why we often don't see difficult symptoms coming out in girls until a bit later when the demand and the resource scale tips. I think it's so fascinating about what you said about feeling overwhelmed and then coming home and crashing out, because that's another thing that I see all the time on TikTok and that I also personally experience is when you start to realize like, okay, I might have been masking in these situations. When you go on this journey and you start to realize, okay, how can I function if I don't mask? And then you go into a social situation and you don't do the things you used to do, you know, get drunk to slightly numb how overwhelming it is or having small talk with someone because you don't want to. I think it's very interesting to see like how you actually show up in that space and what that looks like for me as someone who is five years sober, doesn't drink, doesn't take drugs, doesn't smoke, doesn't do anything that I used to do is that I now have to approach my social functions with a dose of like little, like little and often, or not even often, just like little. And then I look back at going to weddings when I was younger, I would like go and and hide in the house. Like I remember before it was like at 1am and the bus wasn't coming till 3am or whatever. And I found the dog in the parent's house, in the dog's bed. And I just had to have some respite from like how incredibly overwhelming the party was. And now I'm older, I can understand that that was me. Like I couldn't mask anymore. It was too overwhelming. And just that silence and that peace was very, very calm for me. I spoke to a friend recently. She said she went to Glastonbury this weekend. She could not handle it. There was no escape. There was no quiet area for someone that is neurodivergent. She said it was just her worst nightmare. Like she had to leave. Do you think it's fair to say that if you're masking, sometimes you either feel discomfort and you push through it, or you're showing up in situations, maybe not feeling like the true authentic you, but you just keep going? Is is that fair to say? I was just thinking about the authentic self, exactly when you said it. And you're absolutely right. So masking is turning up, putting on a front, putting a mask. That's what it is. It's putting a mask on. It's going and being that person that you think everybody else wants you to be. Again, this is where things get really complicated because I think most people do that to a certain extent. You might go to a more formal meeting or occasion and you put a mask on and you be your most formal self. You might go to a kid's birthday party and you put a mask on and you you do that. The difference between masking in somebody that has ADHD or somebody that has autism is that the amount of energy that is required to get through that. And they're doing it all day, every day in most of their interactions. It's not a really kind of normal adaptive thing that it's just at a meeting at work, but actually I'm my authentic self with my friends or with my partner. What people tell us that have a diagnosis of autism or ADHD is that it's relentless. It's most of the time, it's pervasive across different settings. And then they need that time to restore. 
And I like to think about it like a cycle. So you spend so much time masking, school, work, socializing, and then you are exhausted and you have your restorative time. And that might be sleeping, binge eating, going on TikTok, scrolling on social media, lying on the sofa, watching rubbish TV, whatever it is. But then the day is done. And so where is the time for your authentic self? If we did a pie chart of how much time you spend masking, how much time you spend restoring, where's the space for your authentic self? And I think then you start getting into the comorbidities. And by that, I mean like all the other issues that come up with an ADHD diagnosis, like low mood and no motivation. And what happens there is because you haven't had any space to be your authentic self, you start to feel bad. It impacts your self-esteem. And then you end up with a whole host of other difficulties. I really relate to everything you are saying here. And I feel like I spent the whole of my 20s doing exactly that. It's actually been a really beautiful thing to step into this space and say, I don't know if I have ADHD. I've never done an assessment. I don't know if I have Asperger's. I don't think I have Asperger's or autism, but like you said, there's a lot of traits that kind of cross all of them. So some people might be like, oh, maybe I do have that. Maybe I don't. Whatever it is, whether it's just me, my biology, maybe one day I'll get an assessment. Like I said, we're going to come to that. It doesn't matter because I've learned to compassionately just love myself for being a little bit different and for being a little bit sensitive. I guess my question for you is we've spoken a lot about the challenges and the limitations of ADHD, ADD, I'd love it if we could take a positive spin, not that it's been negative, but flip flip the perspective and talk about, are there superpowers that people who are neurodivergent or neurospicy, as I like to call them, are there benefits and how can we really embrace this with love, compassion and excitement? You're absolutely right. We have talked about ADHD. We've talked a little bit about autism and that's really common and normal because we're talking about two bits of the same brain and actually the same part of that brain. So those symptoms overlap hugely. But here actually is probably where there is a bit of a difference between a typical autistic profile and a typical profile of somebody that has ADHD. And if we're thinking about ADHD specifically and thinking about some of those strengths, I think the first thing to do is really understand where that actually comes from and what's actually going on in the brain. And for somebody that has ADHD, their brain is quite hungry. And so you are seeking stimulation and you are seeking to level out that hungry brain. And we're, we're talking a little bit about dopamine and serotonin, but we don't need to get too um, bogged down in the science of this, but we're trying to even things out in our brain. And what that looks like in a really positive way is somebody that's fun, somebody that's impulsive and that will come meet you for a drink without having to plan it two weeks in advance. It's somebody that can set up businesses and actually take risks to benefit themselves and benefit others. It's somebody that doesn't feel as much fear maybe as a typical person and is able to drive things forward. And I think we all need a bit of that in our life. And if we have a friend or a partner or a relative that has those traits, hold on to them, right? Because they're the doers, they're the people that say, come, let's go do this. Let's throw ourselves into the deep end around this and see where we go. And those are amazing traits. Yes, my sister-in-law is literally 
one of the best people I have ever met in my whole entire life. And she's like that. It's like, she never stops. She never sits down. My surname is Rumble. And, and she always jokes that she's a Rumble now too, through marriage. But she always jokes like the Rumbles love to rest. Like we love to rest. She doesn't rest. Like she's like, go, 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 go. And she is so fun. And I think you're right. It's like to embrace that we are all different people and that we all just need different things and that maybe we might be a little bit more messy or a little bit more fluid or a little bit more laissez-faire or a little bit more, you know, drop our wet towels on the bed, like I'm looking at me here. That all comes as part of just like a beautiful biological setup that we're working with. I also love what you said around dopamine because I think another thing you see on TikTok is people starting to understand also why they maybe might have tolerated very inconsistent men and women and partners. You know, the stable relationship kind of feels uncomfortable for them because the constant anticipatory dopamine hits that you get from like texting someone that you don't know if they're gonna text you back. Do you think that that's fair? Yeah, absolutely think that's fair. That's absolutely a symptom, but also I don't want to put people off experimenting and having fun and that's also okay. I think going through a few partners in your life can be a really healthy thing, can can actually really deepen your understanding of yourself and relationships and how relationships work and helps you to work out what you need long-term. And that's a great healthy place that we're in as society now. It wasn't too long ago where you married somebody at 16, 17, 18, and you had to stay with them for the rest of your life. So I absolutely don't want to put people off going through multiple relationships and, and learning and, and really enjoying that if that's a healthy thing. But there are definitely people that struggle that have ADHD that come to therapy and say, actually, I want to work on this because I'm doing this over and over again. And it's becoming a pattern. And it's not just in sexual partners. It might also be with friendships. So you might go from friend to friend to friend because actually it's the same thing. It's that low dopamine in your brain needing to get a level that feels good for you. And that constant seeking of feeling really good. Those pleasure senses are like, give me more, give me more. And so you might go through relationship after relationship and then start to think, do you know what? I actually want to think about this. I actually want to work out what's going on here for me. Yes, you are so right. And, you know, anyone that listens to this knows that we are very pro learning about yourself through love, through relationships, experiencing yourself, your authentic self, your sexual self. Just be safe, protect your heart, protect your body. So totally agree with you on all of that. I think it's that maybe in between the relationships when your relationship jumping, or maybe it's that you're single and you were just constantly texting people constantly. That's, I think, where it's really interesting that you can start to think, oh, are there some neurotransmitters at play here? Do these potentially tie into some of the cycles of ADHD? And also, if we think about other aspects of our life, so if we're somebody that really likes multiple relationships and that's good for us, then great. But also what's going on in other bits? So do we have an addictive personality trait around other things? Do we eat well? Are we sleeping okay? Actually looking at all those things as a whole, seeing yourself holistically, and then saying, are there patterns across multiple areas of my life? If the answer to that is yes, yes, okay, would we want to think about this more? If the answer to that is, no, actually, I just like moving from relationship to relationship because I'm in an exploratory phase of my life, then as long as you're safe and you're keeping yourself and the other person safe and you're taking responsibility for that, then that's great. 
And I think it's so interesting what you said there around like, do you have addictive traits or tendencies? Is it actually just that hungry brain, that hunt for dopamine, and people are labeling that as addiction? That's a really interesting question. And there's been some research recently about genetics and the, which allele it is. And they've actually got a name for the allele now. And I can't remember. It's something to do with two and Bs. And it's very complicated. But what we know is if you have that genetic makeup, you are more likely to have what we call a behavioral phenotype of these traits that we're talking about. And so you're more likely to have an addictive personality. You're more likely to have a personality that is impulsive, that is constantly looking. If you have a specific genetic makeup, you are more likely to have a loss of dopamine and not enough serotonin. And, and actually, let's just break that down a minute. So the dopamine is the thing that gives you that instant hit. It's the thing that motivates you. It's the thing that gives you pleasure in the moment. And your serotonin is a bit more long-term. It's the thing that gives you inner happiness, the thing that makes you feel calmer. If you have a specific genetic makeup, you might not have enough dopamine or serotonin. And what we then see when we look at people with that genetic makeup is a really specific behavioral phenotype that means that you have personality traits like being more addictive, being more impulsive, struggling with concentration. And it talks to the idea of transdiagnostics. And what that means is exactly what we've been talking about so much in this podcast, which is, is it ADHD? Is it mood? Is it trauma? Is it attachment? Is it addictive personality disorder? What is it? It could be any of these things. And so that set of genes, I suppose, points to all these different symptoms that points to all these different diagnoses. Yes. And I'm so happy that you have referenced more than once, you know, the different I guess, factors and stresses that can result in the way we present in the world. And I think something that we're seeing a lot of in the ADHD field, which we'll probably cover on a different podcast, but I'd love to just touch on today briefly, is Dr. Gabor Mate. He says that he believes that the vast majority of ADHD symptoms actually come from childhood trauma that impact the development of the brain and the nervous system. Is that sort of what you're talking about when you reference trauma or when you reference like developmental incidences? That's absolutely correct. And the job of a clinician that is well qualified is to break this down and say, is this attachment? Is this trauma? Is this neurodevelopmental? I guess the research tells us that there are lots of people that don't have attachment trauma that also have symptoms of ADHD. So we can't say for certain that there's no such thing as ADHD and it's all stress and attachment issues and it's all trauma in childhood and your environment. So in my clinic, there's people with all sorts of different upbringings that present similarly as adults or in their late teens or even as children that get a diagnosis. And we're talking there about people coming into your clinic. So I think as we're coming up for time, I'd love to just jump into this point around assessment. What should people do if they are listening to this and they're thinking, I've loved this, I've learned so much, I relate to a lot of what Dr. Jenna said, where do I go next? I know that one of the questions in our community room, the house, was a difficulty with getting a diagnosis on the NHS. Now, we have a ton of American listeners, in fact, more so than the UK listeners. So if you're American, that is basically our national health service where you can get free healthcare, free diagnosis, low cost and free medication. Do you have any guidance on 
how people should go about getting a diagnosis. Should they try and go private? If they can't go private, should they try and go on the NHS? If they can't get one through the NHS, should they self-diagnose? Where should people go from here? It's that question, isn't it? Well, I think this is me. Now, what happens next? And how do I even start to move forward from the TikToking and the social media self-reflection? And, and look, if you're feeling like, actually, this is enough for me. I can read loads about ADHD and that helps me and I feel in a good place, then that's great. Go forth, immerse yourself in that world. There's nothing stopping anybody saying they are neurodivergent. So that is your language to use if you choose to use it. That's your identity. You can have whatever identity you want and you can use whatever language you want, as long as it's not hurting someone else, obviously. If you're feeling like, actually, I would really like to know specifically what a professional thinks, and I think that I am not functioning very well, and I'm actually really impaired day to day, and I need to go and get some help and support, then please do go and find a medical professional that can help you discover this bit of yourself and think through what is actually going on for you and the different treatment options. And very quickly, I'm going to just give you a a one minute broad overview of the different ways that you can go and get an assessment. So for so many people, they'll have health insurance. So go speak to your health provider, your health insurer and see what's covered and what's not covered. It's a really interesting place in the insurance world at the moment. Lots of people come to our clinic to try and use their insurance, but their insurers don't actually cover a diagnosis of neurodisability. And so that's a wider conversation that we absolutely need to take up with those bodies. If you're outside of that sector, then you're looking at, do I pay for it myself privately or do I go through a government body like the NHS? And the answer to that is, It's really a long process to go through the NHS, but there's absolutely nothing stopping you from doing that. And if that's what you need, you absolutely should. What we don't want is people using their life savings to go and get a diagnosis because that's not very helpful. So go speak to your GP, ask for a referral to your local mental health team and you'll be put on a list and it might take a bit of time to get to the top of that list. But in the meantime, you can go and read books and go to therapy and get an ADHD coach and do all the things that you would do anyway after you were given a diagnosis. You could absolutely engage in that whole narrative and you can engage in that intervention space. Lots of people come and tell us that the GP said, oh, you're fine. This isn't a big deal. You actually need to go and do X, Y, and Z, do more exercise do other things when what you really want is to go through the assessment process. And that's no fault of the GPs. They're just doing what their protocols tell them. They're doing the best for all of their patients. And they might also be thinking, well, it's going to take you two or three years to get through the assessment list. So in the meantime, there's lots of other things that you can be doing. Please just go back again and ask to speak to the GP again and say, actually, I would really like to go on that list It doesn't matter how long it takes. I'm happy to wait, but I feel like this is something that's really important to me. Any really good GP will want to sit down with you and work out a plan collaboratively. They will want you to take ownership over your care, your treatment pathway, your assessment process. So persevere 
And GPs are obviously under so much strain. And I think you get 10 minutes per appointment. So maybe ask for a double appointment when you book your GP slot. Say, actually, I want two appointments in one. And so that gives you 20 minutes to really go into all the information that you might need to get across in order to cross that barrier and get on that list. I'm going to give you a little trick now, actually. There is some legislation called right to choose. And what that means is that you can go and get a private diagnosis with a number of providers and actually the the GP or the local authority will end up paying for that. So if you Google right to choose providers for ADHD, you'll have a little list of, of who comes up and you can contact them and talk through the process. And often their waiting lists are much smaller than going through your normal GP psychiatry route. If you're in a position to pay for a diagnosis or an assessment yourself, then please do your research before you go and pay somebody to do an assessment. Assessments are really expensive privately, so they can range anything from £600 to £3,000. And you want to ask about what's involved in that process. You want to ask how many people are involved in that process in terms of clinicians, Because if there's more than one clinician, you're more likely to get a really good understanding of what's going on rather than if it's just one person talking you through that process. And then also feel free to ask for a free consultation and talk through your issues. So in our clinic, everybody that comes gets a free consultation, at least 15 minutes of having a chat with me or one of the other directors and just walking them through the whole process, what it costs, what your different options are. Don't feel pressured into signing up to anything immediately. Go away, sleep on it, talk to family members, talk to mums, dads, partners, friends about whether this is something that you think you should spend your money on uh, and then go for it if it's right for you. I'm so grateful for you taking us through those different options there because I think that there's a lot of people that fit into a lot of different categories. And I had no idea that it could take such a long time on the NHS to get that diagnosis. So two to three years is a very long is a very long period of time, but I don't have health insurance. So I can really relate to the people that don't have that, that can't get a diagnosis that way, that maybe are stuck on a waiting list somewhere or with a GP that are busy and overburdened and maybe have told you to come back. So that right to choose legislation there, that is an incredible tidbit that you've shared. Thank you so much. And also just some really helpful insight in terms of the multi- clinician assessment, I guess. I thought you were going to say you don't want a multi-clinician assessment because they're less likely to get like deep, you know, into you, but actually you said quite the opposite. So that is, that is really, really fascinating. And I think my point to wrap up here is, like you said, some people will be like, I need this diagnosis. My life is impaired by this condition that I'm living with or by who I feel like I am as a person. And I think if that is you, go for it. Step forward into that space. And if getting a diagnosis is the outcome, don't give up until you get that. You know, it is it is possible. There's lots of different routes. But I also just feel like I've come to accept myself and my brain and my body as being a little neurospicy. Like I said, being a little neurodivergent. I don't know what that is. Sometimes I fit into that TikTok video. Sometimes I fit into that one. But ultimately for me, I feel like I am just going to continue on this journey of like unraveling and learning. And I love that you said that you can start all of the steps as if you have a diagnosis way before you get the diagnosis and and maybe see how, how that shows up. And if your brain feels a little bit less hungry, which is my, my favorite reference of yours today. So before we wrap up, I just wonder if there's anything else that you feel like 
we haven't touched upon. I wish we had longer, but yeah. Well, there's so much more to talk about, isn't there? I think we've had a really good stab at a first overview of what it's like to have ADHD when you go from that TikTok to actually, is this me and now what? There's obviously so much more to talk about and maybe we'll do that one day. But I think the key messages for me are, it's okay to feel a little bit different. You don't have to put a label on that. But if you do feel like having an explanation and some language around that would help you and help your life and help your relationships, then you're absolutely allowed. That's completely valid. And if there's one thing that I would tell people to do is go through the back catalogue of all these therapy things and really pick out those inner voice conversations and pick out the narrative that's come with you through your life and think about how that impacts you now, whether you've got ADHD or not, because whatever symptoms you're struggling with, whatever little personality quirks or traits that you've got going on, having some understanding about where that comes from can be so satisfying. And, and actually, my um, we haven't really talked about my husband at all, but he's a therapist as well. And he often says that if the information is the intervention. So just having language and having an understanding of what's going on, where that comes from, that's the intervention in itself. I feel like knowledge is power. And when you step into a space of just actually taking it off TikTok and maybe starting to research a little bit more, you can start to understand your brain, your nervous system, your body so much more than perhaps you did before. And you just used to punish yourself and be like, oh, I'm so annoying. You know, I'm so bad at this, like condemning yourself for these parts of you that are actually just, yeah, just beautiful biological parts of you. So I think as ever, we always deliver all of our episodes with no shame, no judgment, nothing but love, nothing but understanding. If you want to go and get that diagnosis, get that diagnosis. So if people are based in London, maybe they want to come and get an assessment. Maybe they would like to come and do that with you, your husband, your brother, your practice. Where can people find you? We can link all of your details in the show notes, but I would love to know how does that work? Do you have a wait list? Might people be able to start that journey soon? Yeah. So we're, as we talked about before, we are a private practice in London and actually people come and talk to us from all over the world. So feel free to set something up and there's lots of things that you can do online. doesn't matter where you are. There's also lots of information on our website about ADHD. So there's some videos on there. There's other therapy videos and things. So you can go on there and have a look. The website is www.coveminds.com. So you can get your assessment done remotely, like you don't have to be based in person, is that correct? So the ADHD assessment itself should be done in person, or at least one part of it should be done in person, but the rest of it can be done online. So yes, if you want to do therapy online, that's obviously cool. If you need an assessment, you probably should find somebody um, that can see you at least once face-to-face. Okay, that's such helpful information. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dr. Jenna. This has been A really, really interesting discussion. I am so grateful for you sharing your time, your knowledge, your wisdom, your practice with us. We will link all of your details in the show notes so people can come and find you, whether that's in person, whether that's on social media. And other than that, I just wanted to say thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been amazing. Thank you. Thank you.